Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as a person who tricked Tim Armstrong into believing Oath is a good name, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can subscribe to Recode Decode on iTunes.com slash Recode Decode, and while you're there, leave us a review. Today in the red chair is Laura Weidman Powers, the CEO of Code 2040, a nonprofit organization that helps underrepresented minorities become technologists, inventors, and entrepreneurs. She co-founded Code 2040 in 2012, along with Tristan Walker, who we've had on the show, and previously served as an advisor to the White House on matters of science and tech policy. We're going to talk about that, Laura. (laughs) Welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No problem. So let's talk a little bit about your background. I like to get people, I like to know where they come from and where they formulated what they're doing. Give me a little bit of your your quick bio. Yeah. So I grew up in New York City, Mm -hmm. which uh, is relevant in part because I grew up in an extremely diverse uh, neighborhood, mm-hmm. went to a really what diverse r- neighborhood was that? Uh, Morningside Heights mm-hmm. um, in Manhattan. Um, Columbia? Yes, right by Columbia. Uh, I went to a public magnet school to Hunter growing up. So mm-hmm. again, a lot of diversity mm-hmm. um, in my day in, day out. And I was on the East Coast after that. So I went to Harvard for undergrad. I worked in New York City. And then I made the jump out to the West Coast for graduate school. So mm-hmm. I decided to go out to Stanford for a JD MBA and unwittingly found myself in the middle of Silicon Valley, yeah. which I'd sort of heard of before, but not, did not diverse. Know. Yeah, it turns out that, <laughs> turns was, that out. was one what of my observations, yeah. actually. So what have you done before? What was your job before you, you did the MBA in Stanford? So I mostly worked in education, youth development, nonprofit management. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd started a couple different organizations. There was a community service organization I ran as an undergrad that had been at Harvard for 20 years, mm-hmm. and I raised the funds and brought it to West Philadelphia Public Schools um, uh, with undergrads at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'd started a tutoring company with some friends. I ran operations for a big public art project in New York City. Um, So bounced around a bunch, but was always really interested. Why did you want to go to business school then? So uh, good question. My parents asked me the same thing. Uh I wanted to go to business school because I knew that I wanted to end up in nonprofit management in the public sector. But I was really disillusioned with the way that money and impact were so divorced mm-hmm. in the nonprofit side. And they the are. They don't know. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Yeah. So the for-profit side, you know, you report on revenue and that's mm-hmm. a measure of success. And the nonprofit side, it's impact as it should be. But often the team that's dealing with revenue is totally separate from the team right. that's dealing with impact. Yeah. And, and not a lot of business background among nonprofits. Exactly. People. Exactly. And I really felt like so many nonprofits are creating so many types of value and the job of a nonprofit organization is to choose which value to give away mm-hmm. and which value to charge for. Right. And so I felt like if I wanted to better understand the business side of things, the quickest way to do that would be to go to business. You should school. know about accounting. Yeah, it yeah, it turns out you do have to learn about accounting. I love accounting. <laughs> I'm not gonna go into it with you in detail, but I love accounting. Cost accounting I like, but financial accounting I oh, do I not like. That. We, all I the secrets like are hidden there. That is true. I learned it because early internet people were like Ponzi schemes, so I had to understand mm. where they were lying to me and financial Yeah, financial accounting will will help you with that. Yeah. That makes a lot of it sense. It was great. I found out yeah. everything. And then they were shocked <laughs> that I understood their whole right, tricks. right. Um I went to Wharton actually for uh, I took one of those executive courses. Yeah. So sweet. it was I used to come up to Philadelphia every 
Philly yeah all the time yeah so. Philly's awesome yeah so you so you go to Stanford you get here yes and and I basically realized that sort of this vague term that I'd heard Silicon Valley was this total immersive living breathing culturally different phenomenon mm-hmm. and I was in the middle of it being so describe it for me your impressions so the thing that struck me the most was this focus on entrepreneurship and the future and possibility and the way that people said yes mm-hmm. so people would walk around saying and I have an idea for X and the response was always great go do it mm-hmm. and how can I help And that was just a really different mindset than Mm -hmm. what I was used to. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the best part of Silicon Valley. It is the best part of Silicon Mm -hmm. Valley. Just it opens up the possibilities. Mm -hmm. And I think it it makes you feel empowered in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways to shape the future. And I was both thrilled by that and confounded by the lack of diversity that I saw. Mm-hmm. I actually ended up working at a tech company. A friend of a friend offered me a role building out a marketing rollout plan, which I was like, I do not know what a marketing rollout plan is, yeah. but I'll figure it yes, out. Yes, and. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, I'm in. Yeah. So I- What was the company? Uh, it was a small consumer web startup. Mm-hmm. It was based in LA, doing a handful of different products. Um, that we're all focused on communication, mm-hmm. uh, sort of in the consumer web. Mm-hmm. And I started out doing marketing and moved on to strategy and monetization and ended up uh, through a series of events running products mm-hmm. at the company. And wow. so, yeah, so I was working really closely with the engineering team and sort of helped pivot the company from consumer-facing to a developer-facing product, actually, um, which then obviated the need for me as a non-developer leading Mm -hmm. product. But the interesting thing was that while I was sort of digging in, working with the CTO and with the engineers and understanding sort of the power and potential of that skill set, I was also still representing the company on panels and in meetups and finding myself in all these rooms where there just were not that many people. There were no Laura. There were there were no other Lauras. No, no, not at all. <laughs> not not at all. Yeah. And the narrative at the time, this was uh, twenty eleven, mm-hmm. was well, tax and meritocracy. And oh. if you're here, you deserve to be here. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, you don't. And mm-hmm. the reason that, you know, there aren't more people that look like you is because there aren't more qualified people that look like you out there. Mm-hmm. And I you believe that. I you know my line. It. You know my line. What is your it's line? It's a mirror talk. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. Not, and the only time they use the word standards is when it comes to women and people of color. Yes. And then yes. not never, there was never a bad white guy. Yeah. Before. Yeah. No, I, I wrote a, a blog post, actually, what you're really saying when you talk about lowering the bar and hiring, mm-hmm. which is basically that it's coded language mm-hmm. that's racist and sexist. Mm-hmm. Because I've never heard anyone say, you know, if there are qualified white people out there, we'd hire them. Mm-hmm. Or, you yeah. know, we'd hire more men, but we don't want to lower our standards. Right. Like, no one has ever said those no, words. No, they don't, even though there are no. lower standard men all yeah. over the place, <laughs> yeah. which is interesting. Yeah. It's fa- yeah. When you bring that up, they're like, oh, you're right. I've yeah. never said it. Um, which is interesting because I think, you know, I hate to borrow a phrase from Sean Hannity at any time because he's just <laughs> an awful human being. But when he calls people snowflakes, a lot of the white men of Silicon Valley are snowflakes yeah. in, in every term yeah. that they're like, oh, I'm not that way. I'm like, I mean, yet you are. Yeah. It's interesting. <laughs> so what did you, were you angry about it? Did you want to do something about it? What was, so how did you get to code 2040? And then I want you to explain what you're doing. But so you're doing this, you see yeah. this, you're it. Yeah. You're like the 
Yeah, well, so Tristan Walker, Mm -hmm. um, who was a business school classmate of mine. And he went to Foursquare and then started Walker and Company. Exactly. Um, And at the time, he was at Foursquare. Mm -hmm. um, And he and I had coffee and talked about this very issue, the combination of our experience growing up. He also grew up in New York City, sort of surrounded by diversity, and then how strange it was to come to a place that was so sort of steeped in possibility and yet was lacking this core component of Mm -hmm. innovation. And both of us felt like that sort of the theory of the case at the time that, you know, I can't find them, therefore they must not exist, Mm -hmm. was just false. And our hypothesis was that you can't find them, but actually that doesn't tell you anything about whether or not they exist. And Mm -hmm. we believe that talented people from all backgrounds do exist, and we're going to build a bridge. Mm -hmm. And so Code 2040 started as this idea to build a bridge between the talent that was already out there, Mm -hmm. that people were saying that they couldn't find, and the opportunity that was all around us in the Valley. Mm-hmm. And so explain to what it does now. What is it? So it's been around since when? 2012. Okay. We just turned five. All right. So Code 2040, broadly speaking, is creating pathways for Black and Latino folks into the tech industry. Okay. And we focus on two different entry points. And 2040 is when it's going to happen? Is that the... 2040 is our call to action. It's okay. the start of the decade when people of color will be the majority in the U.S. Okay. Right. And we have a vision... Has before that? Uh, no, we already are starting to see it, for example, kindergartners in California, majority right. people of color. Um, but that's the decade when the census projects that mm-hmm. the country as a whole will be majority people of color. Mm-hmm. And uh, we want an economy that works for everyone right. by then. So, you know, I can run through the stats if interesting. Please of, do. Sure. So, you know, we look at the uh, disparity in net worth across different races. The median net worth of a white family is about $110,000. The median net worth of a black family or Latino family is about five to Mm -hmm. Mm $7,000. So massive, yeah, massive wealth cap, which plays out in all sorts of ways about the types of opportunities that folks have access to and the type of networks that they're in. Mm -hmm. So we want to see that closed and Mm -hmm. eliminated. Did you see our story the other day? We've been doing a lot more infographics around uh, the difference between a black woman and a white man. Yes. Yeah. The the salary disparity in tech. Yeah, exactly. Put out all these statistics almost continually. And it's super important because, you know, what we talk about a lot is there is individual experience. And that is super important to share those stories. And there's data. And that helps paint a picture of, like, the real severity of the problem. So let's talk about 2040. And we'll get to where that is right now in a second in the next segment. But so you started this. It's funded by whom? A variety of different players in the tech industry, foundations. So the Knight Foundation is a big supporter. Um, Intel has been a big supporter. Google for Entrepreneurs. And dozens of other tech companies. And the interesting thing, kind of coming back to this idea of marrying um, kind of impact and revenue is the tech companies that we work with through Code 2040 pay for our services. Mm-hmm. So that is a big piece of right. our funding. So explain as well. what you do. What do you? What is your services? So the flagship of Code 2040 is the Fellows Program, mm-hmm. and essentially what that is is we bring together a cohort of Black and Latino computer science students over the summer. We place them in internships with our 
partner tech companies, Mm -hmm. and we do what's basically a career accelerator on the evenings and weekends. So they network, they get mentors, we do speaker series, dinners with people across the industry, and it equips them with the the students with the skills, the exposure, the experience, and the network that they need to succeed. It's sort of their foot in the door. For about two-thirds of them, they've never had a job or internship before, and this is their entry into the industry. And it also introduces the social aspects. I was just listening to Hillbilly. Elegy. I, I read it, but I was listening to it, and I've just been struck recently by the part where J.D. Vance goes to a, a dinner around Yale, I think it was at Yale Law School, mm. and he'd never been to these dinners, yeah. and he saw the entry, the networking entry points, and he's like, yeah. this is the problem of yeah. poor white people. They don't get to network. Yeah. It's a, you know, he didn't know spoons and forks and, right. and, and how important that was. And understanding all of that, I mean, it's simple as, I remember the first summer with our first five students, we would get dinner and I would order Thai food. And they'd be like, what? And I was like, okay, everyone out here eats Thai food. So <laughs> we're going to eat Thai food and I'm going to explain what the dishes are. Right. And it's things as simple as that, that, you know, seem silly perhaps on their surface, but is the difference between feeling like you belong and not and feeling. So belongings, socialization, these internships, what else? Yeah. So what we learned actually from running the fellows program over the last How five many years, fellows do you have now? This past year, we had 86, Mm -hmm. and uh, we will break three figures, but we have not announced the number yet. So we're growing the fellows program. Where are they from? Where are these? All over the country. So um, we had about 1,300 applicants this Mm -hmm. year for the 2017 class from about 300 Mm -hmm. different colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. And the final class will be a few few dozen different colleges and universities. In the U.S.? In the U.S., U.S. yeah. Yeah, yeah. all students in the U.S., um, all black and Latino, and all studying computer science. So they're all doing technical internships. Mm -hmm. And the fascinating thing is this is our fifth sort of turn of the crank. We've placed hundreds of students at dozens of tech companies. And it's actually given us this insight into what's broken, Mm -hmm. both in terms of how students are getting their foot in the door, but also how companies are getting in their own way Mm -hmm. when they want to become more diverse and inclusive. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've taken that insight and we've developed additional student programming. So for example, now we run a tech spring break Mm -hmm. where we bring students out to do more of the exposure networking, kind of hacking that social isolation. We also do company coaching and company training. So we have a number of different trainings um, and sort of upskilling that we do with the companies that we work with so that when they say that they're actually committed to diversity and inclusion, um, they have the tools to follow through on that. Yeah, there's a lot of talk. There's certainly there a lot of talk. And there's a lot of money spent. It's not like yeah. there wasn't, you know, it's sort of like homeless money in San Francisco. There's plenty of it. It's just yeah. not somehow working. Yeah, yeah. Although I think we've seen a real evolution over the last five years in terms of companies' willingness to spend money on this. Right, absolutely. At, at the beginning, it really felt like they didn't understand why they would pay Code 2040 for something mm-hmm. like this. And now we have companies knocking on our door asking to, to partner. To, so you do students themselves giving company skills. What else? Yep. And then we also... Um, work with entrepreneurs. So Mm -hmm. the partnership with Google for Entrepreneurs is that we actually have eight entrepreneurs and residents in eight cities around the country. Mm -hmm. And those are Black and Latinx tech entrepreneurs that we support. And then they also are have a home base at sort of the local tech hub that's uh, the epicenter of the ecosystem. And Mm -hmm. they're helping to bridge uh, between the local diverse community and the local tech community Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So it's really these sort of four elements. There's kind of the quote-unquote supply side Mm -hmm. of students, entry-level talent, Mm -hmm. the demand side of the companies, 
the building a bridge between those two. We act as sort of a trusted broker. And then you think about that as how do you change the system that exists? And then the entrepreneurship piece is how do you build a new? Right. So as opposed to, to retrofitting. Exactly. Right. Do like, you do a lot of work with venture capitalists then? Because Oh, a little bit we do. You know, I have a I few. feel they're the problem completely. No I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> On so many levels. I, I think that we're starting to figure out ways that they actually want to engage. Some of it is, you know, I have a couple of venture capitalists who have said to me, like, you know, the reason that I spend time with you is because I'm going to be investing in your students. Mm-hmm. And it's true. 80% of our fellows want to start companies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that is a piece that sort of lends itself to collaboration in the future. Mm-hmm. But we just met with a venture capitalist who was interested in the idea of kind of purchasing the trainings that we offer and mm-hmm. then gifting them to his portfolio mm-hmm. so that those founders could actually start to build inclusively. What does that cost? What does it cost? What do you charge companies? So the fellows program is a real range. And mm-hmm. if you partner with us in the fellows program, you get access to our pool of talent, you get the ability to host a certain number of interns, and you get access to the trainings. Mm-hmm. And that's anything from $15,000 to over $100,000, mm-hmm. depending on sort of the depth of the partnership. The company trainings we are just now teasing out from mm-hmm. the rest. So it used to be if you wanted our trainings and mm-hmm. support, you had to be a part of the fellows program. Right. Starting uh, this fall, that'll change. So we're pricing all of that right now. So you're trying to give them something worthwhile, like that they're getting value out of this rather than just feel good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're not actually that interested. I mean, is it, would we like people to feel good? Of course. Yes. Like, that's yeah. wonderful. But yeah. That's not the goal. The goal is they actually build skills and change systems to right. move the needle. Well, I think that's one of the problems is that like when I'm talking to them, you, you make the business case for it. Like yeah. you always are like, well, you do better as a business if you're more diverse and you have to keep pushing that. And at some level, I mean, it's also the right thing. Like what's wrong with it being the right yeah. thing? But of course, that doesn't motivate people because then if you don't keep up, your failure is not tolerated. Yeah, for- I think what we've found, and there are certainly different kind of tranches of CEOs and their Mm -hmm. level of belief on this. But I would say there's a group of CEOs who understand the business case, understand it's the right thing, and still do not know what to do about it. And there's actually a skills gap Mm -hmm. when we think about what uh, CEOs, heads of HR, frontline managers, hiring managers, university recruiting, like there are new skills required to actually build and retain a diverse workforce, and they haven't been prioritized in the no. past. So there's actual upskilling that needs to happen on the company. So talk about the idea of like how they don't know what to do. Like a lot of people don't know what to do, and I think throwing up their hands is, sort of irritates me because they seem to know what to do on everything else and will tell you about it. Yeah. They're not the most you know retiring of non-arrogant people. Um, assembled, but when it comes to this, they're like, I don't know. Yeah. Like anything that's even slightly controversial or, or around fake news, I don't know. Like, yeah. When they can lecture you on everything else constantly. Why is that? And what do you, what do you need to do? Because I, the idea of hand holding them, I just want to just, yeah. you know, they're indulged enough. Like they just have to do it and stop whining about it kind of thing. Well, we don't, we don't think of it as hand holding. We think of it as, as like real partnering and kind of mm-hmm. walking alongside. Mm-hmm. And the idea um, that this is truly a journey and, mm-hmm. You know, you think about the context that we're in. It's not like we used to have a perfectly equal utopian society and we've somehow slipped out of that. Like, Mm -hmm. this isn't necessarily any one person's fault. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of sort of um, societal structures that's baked Mm -hmm. into this. But it doesn't mean it's not our job to fix it. Right. I mean, when you say it's not one person, I think you have to say it's your fault. Because I think we then can, you know, oh, I didn't do anything to the Indians, so therefore I shouldn't be concerned (laughs) about it. But you you know what I mean? Like, 
I think saying it's your fault is actually effective. Like well, you need, and you need to fix it. Kind yeah, of I think that you need to fix it. Like it is our job to fix this, even if we weren't alive at the point right. when the atrocity happened. Right, right. And using the excuse that like it's not me, it's my ancestors. Mm-hmm. Like we're never going to get anywhere. Right. No, absolutely. Um. So, but we see it as you know, this isn't something that is taught traditionally and it's not something you would necessarily valued yeah often not Mm -hmm. one of the things that we realize when we're working with companies is you know for the most part when folks go through some of the trainings that are popular now Mm taking unconscious bias training Mm -hmm. they go they sit in a conference room or a classroom they listen to the training they learn about how they're biased they go back to their desks and nothing has changed in their work environment right. so there's nothing to practice or or put into play necessarily um, there's sort of no rubber hits the road there mm-hmm. and one of the things that works really well about um, the fellows program and sort of the this combination of the training that we do and the direct service that we do is folks go to our trainings they go back to our desks and there's half a dozen black and Latino interns who mm-hmm. are working there mm-hmm. and so they actually get a chance to see how inclusive is my culture? What is the experience of these individuals coming through? And that makes a big difference in terms of putting a, a face to the work right. um, and actually having a chance to build those skills. You know, the same way that if you learn to be a manager mm-hmm. and then you don't manage someone, it's all theoretical and abstract. Sure, you absolutely. don't get to put it into practice. This so works that way too. Talk about unconscious bias because you know I have a thing about that. I think it's totally conscious. I know everybody does that. Like, say I didn't realize I'm doing it. I think you fully realize you're doing it, or you're just not paying attention. Yeah. So I call it laziness. It's like you're just not. I think both can be true. All right. I mean, explain that to me because I'd like to be. I get. I know. I know. There's all these experts and these consultants <laughs> people hire, and there's a whole bunch of money being spent and made on it. But ultimately, I, I think if you tell them they're doing well, they don't do as well. If you say you you are biased, they something does happen. You know what yeah. I mean? By saying unconscious, it's like oh, you didn't mean it, and I'm like you meant it. Like, yeah. I, it's an interesting. So I think what you're pointing out is this idea that talking about unconscious or implicit bias can seem to let people off the hook. That's right. And actually, it's been shown that if you just do an unconscious bias training and it's mm-hmm. sort of like, hey, everybody's got bias, then mm-hmm. the takeaway is like, ooh, phew, it's not me. It's mm-hmm. just like humans right. because we need to learn how to be scared of snakes and we right. make assumptions. Right. And you actually can get farther away from making progress. Right. So I think, you know, I was a psychology major undergrad Mm. I learned about most of what's covered in an unconscious bias training in my like intro to psych as a freshman Mm -hmm. like this stuff is real but that's not the answer to how we kind of get to where we need to be as an industry so the way we think about it is actually blind spots and helping to understand what are the things that you are doing that you are not realizing give me an example So one of the things that we uh, talked about, and we did this internally at Code 2040, we sort of, um, you know, do all of our own trainings, was we went through, there's a list of blind spots, um, and you go through them, and it's a bunch of yes or no questions. And so one of the questions was, do you feel safe walking home in your neighborhood at night? Mm -hmm. And I answered yes. 
And then I was uh, paired with someone else on my team who had answered coincidentally, I mean, of all the questions, had answered no to that question. So we talked about it. And what that helped me see was that there were actually management decisions that I were making that were based on an assumption that I was not even conscious to me that it's cool to stay late in an event or to end up in a different part of the city because I'm safe going home at night. Mm -hmm. And actually, I needed to take into consideration that not everybody on my team had that experience. Mm -hmm. So that's one example. There's other examples about like, was it uh, expected of you and your family that you would go to college Mm -hmm. um, when you graduated from high school? When you were growing up, did you read uh, children's books that featured characters that looked like you and came from your community? There's all sorts of um, kind of things to surface about just recognizing that someone else has perhaps had a different experience in how they move through the world because of their background and where they came from. And the point is not that, you know, that makes you racist or insensitive or what have you, but that you are making a set of decisions that influence and impact other people mm-hmm. based on a set of assumptions that you don't even know that you're making. Because then you also can go on the attack and say, yeah, you are racist or you are a sexist or whatever. And then everyone, you know, then you get Donald Trump. Like, no, we're not. We're yeah. just, you we just don't, are sick of this stuff. We'll get to Donald Trump. In a minute. But, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, I mean, like, because then it gives people permission to say, no, I'm not. And screw you for saying, you know, stop being politically correct. Stop being you know, you can't even bring up the topic now, which is interesting. So that doesn't work either because it puts everybody into a corner. Yeah, I mean, I think the the labeling is challenging mm-hmm. because there certainly are people out there who are racist or say things that are racist. Mm-hmm. But often if you say that to somebody, they're immediately on the defensive mm-hmm. and they actually, we talk about it as fight, flight, or freeze response Mm -hmm. to a conversation Mm -hmm. about race. And most people do not have experience navigating conversations about race. Mm -hmm. And so when you get into one or that um, sort of antenna goes up, you get one of those fight, flight, or freeze responses. Freeze is usually the case. You don't want to say anything. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it's really hard to move a conversation forward when you are in one of those mindsets. So what do these companies do wrong? So... One of the things that we realized early on mm-hmm. that would come up is that companies would use proxies to judge the things that they value. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that was really common because, you know, we particularly at the beginning deal primi- primarily with internships mm-hmm. was using university attended as a screen for whether a student would get an interview. And when we actually digged with companies, I mean, it seems obvious when you say it, like they don't actually care what university you went to. Mm -hmm. They're using that as a shortcut to understand what classes did you take and like, you know, how are you socialized Mm -hmm. into working with others and Mm -hmm. all of that. And when we push companies to say, you know, can you actually identify what are the things that are going to contribute to performance in the job Mm -hmm. that you are trying to get at through university as a proxy, Mm -hmm. they could, in many cases, actually name things. And then we said, okay, screen for that. And that actually opens up a whole new talent pool that's just sort of lopped off prematurely. It's It's a shortcut. You're saying shortcuts. Yeah. Harvard shortcut. Exactly. Stanford shortcut. Exactly. Um, So there are a lot of things like that, actually, where it's about kind of taking a step back and understanding the shortcuts that you're taking that are, um, in many cases, unintentionally Mm -hmm. exclusive, but in practice familiarity, essentially, they're looking for familiarity. Yeah, familiarity is huge. Another big one that we see is companies will um, have a whole interview process and there'll be a bucket for um, culture fit. 
Mm-hmm. And often that's not no. defined. Never. And so what happens is the person is like, would I like to have a beer with you? Yeah. Or be stuck that's on an airplane with now, you? Right, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or all these questions that like are sure, interesting, but totally irrelevant mm-hmm. to someone's ability to perform. Mm-hmm. And so what we do is actually say, okay, you should be ensuring that a person is a, we usually talk about a culture ad or a values mm-hmm. ad. They're moving your culture of values forward. Mm-hmm. And you need to be explicit about that. You right. can't leave that up to individuals because individuals will just choose someone they want to be friends with. Mm-hmm. So should you get rid of the culture fit thing? I think it's crazy. You should define what it is that will cause someone to be successful mm-hmm. in your environment. I don't think you can. Think, it, to me, I think it's bullshit I always I, was- so I think there are ways to to get closer like mm-hmm. we went through and we defined at code 2040 like what are our values and what are right, some yeah. questions that we can use to understand whether the person we're talking to values these values mm-hmm. and if they do then whether or not I want to have a beer with them is yeah. whether they drink beer it's yeah. totally irrelevant yeah. it doesn't matter because yeah. I know that they're going to move the organization yeah I was forward. just talking to Ellen Powell she's working on a book and talking about when we moved to Vox we moved some women over to Verge and stuff like that and so our numbers are so small it went out of what is usually 50 50 for example mm-hmm. and i was concerned with it and pushed people but i already had people here who were also concerned the white men were just as concerned as i was as everybody was so it was we had hired for people who that was a concern yeah. to st- and so is the management of vox so it wasn't everybody was already on the same page which yeah. was helpful and i'm not sure why that was because we hired for that yeah it makes a big difference we hired for that. so what else do they do because again you know you see these numbers come out you know yeah. you just saw uber's numbers you just they're the same yeah they're the same so i think and especially around people of color whoa yeah like, whoa it's not good and the interesting thing too i mean going back to sort of this initial idea of like the narrative that they're not out there it's a pipeline problem like 18 percent of computer science bachelor's degrees go to black and latinx students every mm-hmm. year and then you look at the numbers and it's three percent, you know, five percent. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So we know that there's a disconnect between folks who are making it through the entirety of the education Where pipeline. So that is the question. A lot of them. Government. Uh, so, yeah. Government consulting kind of local. We had one uh, student. Uh, a black student from uh, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, who came out to participate in the fellows program. Mm -hmm. And he interned at Jawbone. Mm -hmm. And when he got here, he said, you know what, before coming out here and doing Code 2040, I thought that with my computer science degree, I was going to build websites for local companies. Mm -hmm. Not that that's a bad path, but that is what he thought the world of possibilities was. Mm -hmm. And so some of it is, you know, the, giving the, him a perspective, a bigger exactly. perspective. And companies, you know, I've talked to so many CEOs of companies with with big name brands who don't actually realize that that doesn't necessarily translate to the communities that they right. want to so target. So people self-select out. Yeah, they don't even know don't about the opportunity. They or they see the numbers and say, yeah. why would I right. want to be there? Right, exactly. Why, why should I, I be the only to, in right. the room? Why yeah. would I put myself in that position? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's something that companies have to contend with, too, is actually going uh, above and beyond to be intentional and welcoming mm-hmm. at a point when they really have a reputation for neither of those mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. All of them do. The numbers are exactly the same in all of them. And they're yeah. all different companies. But that That's what's fascinating to me. They're all trying different things. Like Google, I would say, tries very hard yeah. and seems to be genuine about their efforts as opposed to an Uber, for example. <laughs> so it's a really interesting thing that you get this exact same outcome 
yeah. no matter what you do. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, and I don't have the kind of data to back this up, but certainly if you listen to kind of the narrative around hiring out here, there's a lot of poaching from company to company. Mm-hmm. And there, there's this sense that the pool is small and the pool is out here. Mm-hmm. And if that is... They're not here. Kind of, right. If they're not here, there's a heavy emphasis on referrals, mm-hmm. um, which again encourages that poaching and jumping from company to company. And of course, if you have this closed pool, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. it's not surprising that the numbers will that look you get the what same. you get. You always get what you... If you always do what you always did, you always get what you always got. Yeah. My grandmother used to say that. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about the problems then we'll talk about what works. Let's yeah. finish up on what works. Let's try to be posi- have some positivity <laughs> here. I'm not a positive person about this. I really am not. And it's because I'm old. I'll and try to be positive. Try to be positive. Okay. Because that's your job. Um, <laughs> my job. job is to complain <laughs> incessantly about these people. So look at the situation at Uber right now, for example. They've got a woman problem. They've got a diverse, they've got a people of color problem. It seems like they're like the essence, the boiled down essence mm-hmm. of the problem. You know, when you read that story by Susan Fowler, for example, because you deal with gender issues, too. Yeah. What did you think? You know, there are so few, like, full accounts Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. that are out there. There's pieces of them. There are pieces of them. And, you know, when you're in this work, you hear stories like that Mm -hmm. often. Right. Every Um, woman has one. What was interesting on Twitter is every man, lots of men on Twitter, not every man, but a lot of men were like, oh, I had no idea. And everyone was like, oh, I got a story. (laughs) And I I was like, ask a woman. Just lean over and ask. And they all have at least three stories. Yeah. And I think we're really in that phase where we're surfacing the data, we're surfacing the stories, and kind of creating a much more out in the open conversation about this. Mm -hmm. You know, again, when we started five years ago, this just was not a topic of conversation. You know, Google then released their diversity data in 2014 that started the data conversation and now I think we're seeing more of these um, kind of anecdotes that really round out uh, the data yeah sort of like the videos of police brutality like you knew the numbers but then you see the videos but people still don't believe it which is fascinating yeah well you know I think the question then has to be like is the point to get everybody to believe it or is the point to get it to change and I Mm -hmm. don't actually think you need everybody to believe it or Mm -hmm. on board to Mm -hmm. actually create change. You just need the influencers and the decision makers Mm -hmm. to create change. So what's critically important in that? Is it is it the CEOs? Because I know Mark Benioff now is on a like really and he said I didn't focus on it. And so now I am. And I think it does make a difference when the CEO or the leader and if there's discernible both sticks and sugar carrots for it. You know, I don't think uh, sugar. Sugar. (laughs) Um, There's got to be both, but it seems sticks work quite well or that you will pay for this if it isn't part of your thing. Does it have to be from the top or can it come from employees? Because a lot of say the immigration stuff has come from the bottom versus the CEOs who naturally are in a crouch position. Yeah, well, I think um, ideally you want like pressure on all sides. So Mm -hmm. the CEO is incredibly important because that is the person that everyone is going to ultimately look to to say like, is this really important? important. Mm-hmm. Um, but the CEO speaking on this alone doesn't actually move the needle by itself because it's not a PR issue or an internal communications issue. Mm-hmm. It's actually a tactics and policies issue. So you need folks who are in charge of those sorts of things to actually make the change. And I think where we've seen it start to be successful is where it's the combination. Often it's like, you know, the young folks who 
really care about this who start to be vocal at a company, that causes leadership to pay attention. Leadership gets on board. And then the critical third piece is, okay, well, now management's going to have to execute. So how do we give management the tools and support needed to actually drive this change? Mm-hmm. So what? let's talk about what works then. What really does work? So CEO leadership, mm-hmm. bottoms up interest by people. Yeah. Because um, often they're like, I'm so busy, I don't have time. Like, they, that's often an excuse. It's yeah. like, we've got other things to do. We're making a photo app that's critically important. <laughs> well, I think what it's often positioned as an add-on. Yeah. And actually, what really needs to be the case, right, is to change the core of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Like, we're actually not saying, like, keep hiring the way you're hiring and, like, also do this diversity thing on the side. We're saying you need to change the way that you hire in order to be more inclusive. Actual practices, if you were a startup, what are critical things? One. So some of it is how you source Mm -hmm. and actually um, kind of going back to uh, expanding the networks. Not from taking which those shortcuts, right? Right. Um, some of it is how you vet, so um, eliminating those proxies from mm-hmm. your vetting. Mm-hmm. Um, and we actually uh, pulled together, Code2040 pulled together a group of nine tech companies mm-hmm. um, who were all really committed to that idea. How do we reimagine our vetting and interview process, not for diversity candidates, but for all candidates? Mm-hmm. And they met at Code2040's offices over the course of a few months, and in some cases actually completely tore apart and rebuilt their entire entry-level vetting process. Medium is an example of that. Mm -hmm. They published all of it. And that totally changed the way that folks were equipped to interview in a way that was inclusive. Mm -hmm. So there's things like that that work. There's also uh, manager training. So one of the things that we do with folks who are participating in the fellows program is we actually train all of the managers on how to manage, we call it managing across lines of difference. There are things that particularly affect um, candidates who are underrepresented that managers need to know how to deal with. So one of them is um, imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. So the feeling that somebody made a mistake, I do not belong here. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's triggered by all sorts of signals that are sent about, um, you know, well, there's nobody else that looks like me here. There's nobody else from this background. And actually uh, managing someone who is going through suffering from imposter syndrome, you need certain tools around that. How do you give feedback to someone, constructive feedback to someone who's convinced that they are not good enough? There's actually specific ways that you can approach that conversation to create a more effective management relationship. Mm -hmm. And we know that one of the things that happens is that people from underrepresented backgrounds, particularly when they're being managed by someone from the majority background, so a white male managing a black female, for example, that black woman will not get the same amount or type of feedback as if she were a white man. And that Mm -hmm. inhibits her progress. But at the same time, giving feedback to someone suffering from imposter syndrome is challenging. So we have tactics and techniques for how you do that. And not feeling nervous about doing that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So there's things like that sort of all up and down that Mm -hmm. can be adopted and adapted by different companies. Um, And I think ultimately that's the point is that um, there are things out there, there are tools, there are tactics that do make a difference and do work. um, but you have to actually invest in upskilling mm-hmm. around them. It's not and also HR is not invested in. It's it's usually an afterthought. HR yeah. in general is an afterthought. Yeah, and historically, um, you know, 
diversity has been a compliance issue right. for HR. Right. Um, you know, how do we avoid lawsuits as opposed to, yep. you it's know, recruiting or avoiding lawsuits? Right. And if you actually think about, you know, Code 2040 again gets its name from this mm-hmm. demographic shift and where the country is going the workforce is going to change dramatically in the next mm-hmm. 25 years. So this isn't going to be a compliance issue. This is going to be a can we your, actually this staff is for pool. growth? This is yeah, pool this is it. So I'm going to finish up. By, and then when you talk about that, I think Ellen Powell brought this up on stage at Code, is, is blind interviewing. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? Well, look, it's been shown to work in some yeah. cases, for sure. Um, Nobody seems to like it because you got to see the person. You gotta, well, I think, you know, it's challenging to actually create an interview process that's blind mm-hmm. that functions in the way that we expect interview processes to work. Right, because you want a little getting to know you kind of thing. You know, the the quintessential example is like the symphony auditions, but right. like you're listening in right. that case. Um, and that's actually, that mirrors the way that, you know, audiences experience the symphony in a way that is not mirrored if you're thinking about blind sure. interviews. It doesn't mean it's not a good idea. It mm-hmm. just means that there's like things to work out about how that would be put into practice. Right, right. And I think there's, like we're so, far from like a silver bullet solution yeah, to do that, yeah. at this point you just like give there's someone so, a number like, right there's so many things that we can do between here and there right. um sort of while working that so out so can we finish talking about what's happening around immigration and the idea of not just a diverse culture here in the United States but bringing in everyone there's a lot of people thinking of not coming here yeah many of people of color from yeah. all these countries mostly actually it's not like it's the Canadians that are you know what I mean like it's from <laughs> yeah. these seven Muslim countries it's um bringing in talent obviously many many companies in Silicon Valley were started by people of color um, from other countries, from these countries that are under siege right now by our government. How does this impact it? What do you, when you look at, you know, the immigration ban and stuff like that, and and it shouldn't only be because it's the right thing to do again, but it's because it helps, that's how it's being sold to the tech industry. We're doing it because it's for our business, but it's also, it's a point of our country kind of thing. How does this impact this? Because then there's sort of a backlash. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is interesting. Like, fundamentally, like, we believe that there is room for everyone Mm -hmm. here. And when we think about kind of how the both what it looks like to focus on including the people that are here currently in this country and to ensure that we're including folks who want to come here. Like this is the fundamental economic question of the 21st century Mm -hmm. is how do we actually make the economy work for everyone? And it's being framed in a number of different ways. It's an immigration issue. It's a rural versus urban issue. It's a class issue. But ultimately, what we're looking at, and I think why we do this work in the tech sector, is that that same sense of kind of possibility and yes and that I felt when I first got out here Mm -hmm. is kind of fundamental to the ability for us to problem solve. Right, and thrive. Um, Exactly. And so really, you know, um, I'm supposed to be positive here, but what's at stake is actually the future of our economy. Mm -hmm. Like, are we going to figure out how to be inclusive so that we can harness the talents um, and innovations and ideas of people from all backgrounds? Or are we going to stay kind of it's us versus them and, um, you know, in group, out group and this club? And we're actually, I think, going to really hamper our growth and Mm -hmm. our ability to thrive over the next 25 years. Do you think Code24 should go to like 
Kentucky and help the coal miners. So, you know, the poor white people are sort of in a similar situation. You know, there's that us versus them there. Yeah. So do you think about that? Yeah, we all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, the way we think about it is Code 2040 is centering two groups that have been historically excluded, Blacks and Latinos. Mm -hmm. And we feel like this focus on race is actually a way to solve for a lot of challenges that face folks from all different backgrounds while holding us accountable and also honoring the fact that there's a high degree of cultural competency and cultural understanding that's needed to do this work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, you can't just equip create equivalencies between the Kentucky, the poor white male Kentucky coal miner mm-hmm. and the, you know, black woman. Who, well, they try to put them against each other. That's the whole goal exactly. is to have them fight yeah, or hate. Right. And that's sort of the classic tools of the oppressor. And, yeah, they got theirs. Right. And mm-hmm. we're going to use those to kind of turn against one another, which mm-hmm. is just going to further divide the country and mm-hmm. allow for better prosperity and success for those who are already thriving. Right. Um, so we have to find ways to to share best practices, to be allies to one another. I mean, mm-hmm. this is something we talk about a lot mm-hmm. and work on a lot is how can we as Code 2040 be the best allies for that all we can these be efforts to do it for all efforts. Um, the very last thing I want to talk about is you were you served at the White House. You I did. did. What did you do there? You advised on senior policy advisor yeah. uh, to Megan Smith. Yeah, I know yes, Megan. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Here you know each other. Yeah. Um, but you but you now then you left. Yes. What I do you, did. How do you assess this administration? Are they committed to this? Because Barack Obama certainly was. Barack Obama certainly was. I mean, when I was there, we did a number of things around um, kind of how we collect. We called it raising the floor. There's mm-hmm. no kind of again silver bullet or guide to like getting an A plus, but Mm -hmm. there are a lot of things that companies can do that if you're not doing them, like you're doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. And the goal of something like that was let's use this platform to create it and then let's get it out of the building. Let's get it right. You wanted to iterate it. You may and talked about iterating. Right. Exactly. Let's get it into the hands of the people who are going to implement. Right. And so And what works in one place, could it work somewhere else? Right. And so we developed things like that where the requirement was not that the next administration, whoever it was, sort of pick up the baton, but that we were actually handing the baton out to the private sector. I see. And so that was always the the strategy, was we didn't need to rely on it the continuing. next person to continue it. How yeah. do you assess this administration's interest in the area? Um, I have not heard them talk about this as no, an area No, we wrote a focus. story about it just yes, recently. I will say that. There's like two people out of 100. <laughs> but they're cutting jobs and saving us all money, yeah. meanwhile, switching it. Yeah. Do you have worries about that? Do, um, do we need I the have, government? Because so many of these new jobs, you yeah. know, robotics, AI, all this stuff needs government yeah. help. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes. The I next mean, economy is all about government company cooperation. It seems yeah. Like. Steve no, Case talks about it in the third wave. and Absolutely. And I think what, one of the things that was most fascinating about having the opportunity to be in the administration was to be surrounded by people who are thinking about all those mm-hmm. things day in and day out, which really helped me see the critical role that government is going to have to play in figuring out how like all of this stuff interacts yeah um so yeah i'm a big believer that there is a role for yeah, for government and in innovation it's a real estate um, guy and a treasury guy who doesn't believe in robotics yeah or in automation or something yeah. like that well i said government not this government <laughs> <laughs> all right uh, very last question what is your your metric of success for yourself 
Uh, for Code 2040? Yeah. For, We're like half-half or what? So we use, again, the year 2040 is sort of our call to action. Right. We want to see econo- economic equity. Um, we want to see an economy that works for all. What we actually want to measure as to how are we getting there mm-hmm. is proportional representation in the in- innovation economy. So blacks and Latinos will be 42% of the population in 2040. And we want to see 42% across the innovation economy, including entrepreneurs, investors, founders, CEOs. Um, technologists across the board. That is a big job, Laura. I know, and I only have 23 <laughs> years. 23 years to do it. Well, yeah. I hope you do it well before that. Thank anyway, you. it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews we've done with Laura's Code 2040 co-founder, Tristan Walker, the team behind HBO's Veep, and former Secretary of Commerce, Penny Prisker, just to name a few. All those interviews and more are at recode.net slash decode. Now that you've done with this, why not try one of our other podcasts, Recode Media with Peter Kafka, comes out on Thursday. On Friday, I host Two Embarrassed Ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from our events like the Code Conference, Peter Kafka's Code Media, and Jason Del Rey's Code Commerce. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Digital Media, the company that distributes this show, including Beth O'Connell and our editor, Chris Basil. And thank you to our producer, Eric Johnson. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then.